Welcome to Friendship with God. Today, Tom Cantor will teach us from Genesis how Noah fell into drunkenness and how we can scripturally avoid the dangerous temptations to drinking alcohol. Download this message for free at friendshipwithgod.org. Now here's some highlights from this week's messages. God acknowledged when he spoke that he knew that he was signing up to be the God of people who have a sinful nature from their youth. But with all those adversaries so much more powerful than us, all wanting to do those things against us, the question is, how are we supposed to stand? And he says, I'm establishing my covenant with you. It's very important to note here, this statement is made by God twice, and he's emphasizing to them, this is my covenant. Now here's Tom Cantor as we continue our expository study of the life of Noah in the book of Genesis. So now with verse 8, God calls together Noah and his sons with something very important that he wants to tell them. Very important. And he tells them in verse 9 that he is establishing, or literally making to stand, a covenant. A covenant with them, and not just with them, with every person after them, and with the animals, and all the animals that come after them, and the birds. And this is so very important to God that in verse 11, he repeats it. And he says, I'm establishing my covenant with you. It's very important to know here, note here that these, these, this statement is made by God twice. And he's emphasizing to them, this is my covenant. You know, man didn't ask, Noah didn't ask for this covenant. Nobody asked for this covenant. But this is something so important to God that he wants to make this, this promise that he's not going to kill uh, anymore by a worldwide flood. Now, what's going on here? Why do we have these verses? Why is God doing this? I mean, he didn't have to do this. No one asked him to do it. He does it twice. He's, he's emphasizing that it's his covenant, and, and he's going to make it stand. And so, and he, he introduces it with the word behold, which, as you remember, means look up, you know, like you now. <laughs> so, look up, God says. I'm making this covenant to stand. It's my covenant. What's, he te- what's this teaching us? Well, before the flood, God said, you remember in, in Genesis 6, 3, that his spirit would not always strive with man. And that, from that verse, we understood that God's spirit had been struggling with man, had been wrestling with man. And he was trying to get man to come to himself. And God was trying to get man to repent. And he was trying to get man to stop going down that road of violence and corruption. But the sad truth is, God lost the battle. That's what you have to conclude. He lost the battle with the souls of men. And there was nothing left for God to do but judgment. And then we, see, we saw his thought process. What was going on inside God's mind? He said in Genesis 6, 5 through 7, he said he, when he saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of thought of his heart was only evil continually. In other words, there was no stop in man. He was hell-bent, literally, to going to hell. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him at his heart. And then God said, okay, I, there's nothing left for me to do. I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, man and beast, creep think fowls. It repenteth me that I have made them. So we saw, we saw in those verses that how when God lost the battle, 
for, in trying to persuade men to forsake sin, to follow righteousness. And having lost that battle, it brought a great sadness to God's heart where it says it grieved him at his heart. And then we saw there was nothing left for God to do. There was no other option except for him to resort to this worldwide destruction that happened in the flood. And that's when he said, I will destroy man whom I have created. Then we saw that before he did that, God reflected on what had happened to his earth, to men and all that. And he said, it repenteth me that I have made them. In other words, God was saying, look, because of the decisions that man has made, God said he was actually sorry that he made man in the first place. He was sorry. He said, I I wished I hadn't done it, is what he is saying at that point. When with those words, it grieved him in his heart, it repenteth me that I have made them, we really see a picture of God in great distress over sin and over the, the, the corruption and violence that man had engaged himself in. And then came the flood. Now, at the end of the flood, it looks like God has taken time to reflect backwards. See, before he was reflecting forwards, now he's reflecting backwards on what happened. And he feels really badly about what happened. He hates the judgment that man forced him to bring on the world. He hates this, what happened with this worldwide flood. He doesn't feel good about it at all. And he's looking over the devastation and the death that the flood has brought, and God's sorry. And he's, he's not taking pleasure in what happened. Like he said in, in Ezekiel 18.32, I have no pleasure in the death of, the, of him that dieth, saith the Lord. Wherefore, turn yourselves and live. He said in Ezekiel 33, 11, As I live, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? So God wants Noah and his sons to know how much he hates to judge man. How much? Because why? Because God is for man. And God does not want to judge man. And God does not want to send anyone to hell. He doesn't. And that gives us the clarity here as we see what he's doing here of 2 Peter 3, 9. Because this is an illustration when Peter says, The Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He doesn't want to send people to hell. He wants to save all men. And that's what it means in 1 Timothy 2, 4, when he says, The Lord will have all men to be saved, come to the knowledge of the truth. He only sends men to hell when they force him to, because they will not let him save them from their sins. And that's a bad day for God when he sends anyone to hell. And God wants this part of his person to be magnified or known or seen over and over again. So he makes this covenant or promise to never use a worldwide flood again to destroy man. And then in verse 11 through 16, he gives a token for that covenant. So the fact that God does not enjoy to judge man. God is not to want to send anyone to hell. It's so important with God that we have these verses from 11 through 16. 
where he makes this special token. No one asked him for the covenant. For sure, no one asked him for the token. So all of a sudden, now we have a token for a covenant that wasn't asked for. We got a token that wasn't asked for. We got a covenant that wasn't asked for anyway. And he explains what this special token means. And, he's, and it's so important to God to make man understand. He doesn't want to send anyone to hell, to judgment. So he explains what he's doing in a very definite act. And he says, I do set. And then he calls the rainbow, my bow. That's what he says in the cloud in Genesis 9. And he says, verse 13, and he explains that the rainbow is a token. It's a token of a covenant that he's made there. And he explains that he wants to have this token many times appear, like a continual appearance of this token in the sky for everybody to see. And he says that when this token is seen, this rainbow, it's a continual reminder. And he even says in verse 16, 15, he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to enjoy looking at that token because he says, I'll remember, when I see the token, God says, I'll remember the covenant. And the waters shall no more become a flood to destroy all flesh. He said he enjoys to be reminded about the covenant. He enjoys to be reminded that he doesn't want to send anyone to hell. That's what he enjoys to be reminded. And that's why he said that, that it's going to be in the cloud and I'll look upon it. So God says, when it appears, he's going to take some time and look on it. Every time it appears, he's going to look on it. He's going to remember, I don't like to send anyone to hell. That's not me. And why does God always want to see the token? Because, again, it's for God, it's for us to be reminded who he is. Why does he want it all the time? Because so many people are forcing God to send them to hell. How? By clinging to their sin, by not letting God save them. It seems like God is just continually sending people to hell, and he doesn't want to be doing it. God wants that there should be in the sky a reminder of that this is not what he wants to do. And it's distasteful for him to send people to hell. And so what does the rainbow mean to us when we see the rainbow? It means John three sixteen through 18. Of course, you know the verse, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, and whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The second verse is very important. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. See, the rainbow is speaking to this, that God did not send his Son. The Son of Man came not into the world to destroy, but to save. See, it's that truth. And he that believeth on him is not condemned, and he that believeth not is condemned already, because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So this is what it should mean to us. The rainbow is a continual reminder to us that God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world. He doesn't like this judgment. He only does it when he's forced to do it. It's distasteful to him, and so should it be to us. And so that means that every time we see the rainbow, that's our call to be about the Father's business, which is not to go around and condemning people, uh, but to go and to seek to get them saved, seek to see them saved. See? Okay, now, then we have in verse uh, 18 that um, the three sons, and they overspread the earth. And so we have these three sons who populated the earth. So we have the one son. His name was Japheth. That means to spread abroad. He went north. And he became the people of Europe and Persia and Asia. More or less. I don't know. We can't track him with DNA today so well. But anyway. And then Ham, 
He went to Denny's and became ham and eggs. No, no, I'm just joking. <laughs> he went to south and, and he became the people of Canaan, as the original Canaanites. And Egypt and um, Ethiopia and Af- Africa. And then Shem, think of Shem like Sem, Semites, Shemites. They went south and they became the people of Syria and the Middle East, more or less. Okay, now we come to verse 20. In verse 20, it says here that Noah began to be a husbandman, and he planted a vineyard, okay? And he drank of the wine and was drunken, and he was uncovered within his tent. Now, this is the first mention of wine. And uh, the question is, is this referring to grape juice (laughs) or wine, okay? I mean, you think that's funny, right? Well, I know one mission organization that had a requirement that all of their people in their organization had to sign a statement that wine always referred to grape juice in the, uh, in the Bible. See? That's what they did. <laughs> We're not going to conclude that. I mean, you know, we wouldn't understand verse 21, you know. And he drank grape juice and was drunken. And, you know, or, or like Paul said in Ephesians 5.18, Be not drunk with grape juice wherein is excess. Uh, so, okay, so he begin, Noah begins to cultivate the ground, and we find Noah planting the vineyard, and Noah's drinking the wine, and then he gets drunk. Okay, and it was mentioned, this is the first mention of wine in the Bible. Now, the first mention of wine in the Bible, not a very good light. Wine's not in a good light in this mention. Now, the second mention of wine in the Bible is Genesis 14. That's where Melchizedek, the priest of God, comes out and he brings wine, he brings bread and wine, same word, same Hebrew word, yain, to Abraham after his exhausting battle to rescue his, his foolish nephew, Lot. So, you know, the priest of God brings wine. So there we see wine in a good light, right? So, and then the third mention of wine in the Bible is Genesis 19, where Lot's two wicked daughters... Agreed, and it says in Genesis 19.32, Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him that we may preserve seed of our father. So the results of that use of wine were the Moabites and the Ammonites that Israel is still fighting today. So what do we gain from this? There are places in the Bible where wine is in a good light, as we mentioned, but uh, it's in a good light. For example, Paul told Timothy to use wine as a medicine. He said in 1 Timothy 5.23, drink a little wine, drink no longer water, he says, but use a little wine. Oh, he's a little, get thirsty. For thy stomach's sake and thine often infirmities. So wine's in a light here of a medicine, you know, it can cure stomach infections and it dissolves fats that upset the stomach. And so Paul told him to use a little wine for his stomach and his, his other ailments, Timothy's other ailments. It reminds me of Cheryl's grandfather back on the farm in Pennsylvania. And her grandfather was in a wheelchair. He had bad circulation, so he'd lost his legs, and he had poor circulation to his brain, and it caused him to see little bugs on his sweater. He used to call them graybacks, and he used to say to show, get them off, get them off of me, get them graybacks off of me, you know, because <laughs> he had bad circulation. And so he used to say to Cheryl, he said, Cheryl, where's that bottle of whiskey? He used to say, you know, and said, where did Grandma hide that bottle? And Cheryl would say, now, Grandpa, you know, Grandma does not want you to have that bottle. And then he would say, Cheryl, the doctor said for me to take just a little nip of whiskey every day for my poor circulation. Anyway, so that's a good use of wine, maybe. So, and then we saw wine in the case of Melchizedek 
And it was brought as refreshment to Abraham. We saw wine in a good light. And the Lord Jesus Christ, he turned the water into wine at his first miracle in the marriage of Cana. We saw wine in a good light in the Last Supper, where the Lord Jesus Christ, holding it, said, drink this in remembrance of me. So there are many instances in the Bible where wine is in a good light. Good light. Solomon gave a flagon, a piece of good piece of flesh, or maybe it was David, and a flagon of wine to everybody when they came to Jerusalem one time. Anyway, on the other hand, there are many instances in the Bible where wine is in a bad light. For example, here with Noah, where it brought about, uh, we also saw that it brought about this wicked union between Lot's uh, two daughters. Wine was not to be drunk by the Nazarite, who had given himself to God. Wine was not, if you wanted to have rational thinking, as it says in Proverbs 31, 4 and 5, it's not for kings, O Lemuel, it's not for kings to drink wine nor for princes strong drink, lest they drink and forget the law and pervert the judgment of any of the afflicted. Now, the the next verses after that tell how wine is to be used. It says, Give strong drink unto him that's ready to perish, and wine unto those that be of heavy hearts. Let him drink and forget his poverty and remember his misery no more. So it's to escape reality. You You know that. Remember I told you I used that verse in Japan. Uh, at dinners with Japanese businessmen when they would ask me to drink sake, wine, and whiskey. And I'd say, you know, the Bible says to give strong drink to him that's dying (laughs) and to the heavy-hearted. And I said, your company doesn't make me feel like I'm dying and I don't feel (laughs) heavy-hearted. So so wine is seen in both good and bad lights. but, But the Bible has warnings about wine. And that's why it says in 1 Timothy 3.8, Likewise must the deacons be grave, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, nor greedy of filthy lucre. Titus 2.3 says that for the women, aged women, it says, Likewise they should be, be in behavior, becometh holiness, not false accusers, nor given to much wine, teachers of good things. So evidently from those two verses we understand that the problem of the excess of wine was a problem in Paul's day. And in Proverbs 21, 17, it says, He that loveth pleasure shall be a poor man. He that loveth wine and oil shall not be rich. Tom, today you mentioned Noah, and you also mentioned how he got drunk. Now, how should we as believers view liquor? You know, believers are special people. We're not just anybody. We're people that have been bought with a price. We're people who call the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of our lives. We're people who view the Bible as truth, God's truth. And God does give us direction about liquor in Proverbs 23, 30 through 35. It starts off in verse 30, and it says, They that tarry long at the wine, they that go to seek mixed wine. So here we have the scene here that wine or liquor draws in. They that tarry long at the wine. In other words, it's got this have another drink aspect to it. Then it says, they that go to seek mixed wine. And liquor has this this way of captivating a person, or a person is working all day, and he says, when I get home, I'm just going to have that wine, and I'm going to feel so much better. I'm thinking about it. I'm looking forward to it. It says then in verse 31, look not thou upon the wine when it is red, when it giveth his color in the cup, when it moveth itself aright, verse 32, at the last... It biteth like a serpent, 
and stingeth like an adder. So here we have two aspects of liquor described. A, an immediate effect that's described as the stingeth like an adder. An adder is one of the most poisonous snakes. The puff adder kills immediately in that part of the world. And so wine can have this immediate effect. And in other words, wine liquor has an immediate effect on the body, an immediate, uh, immediate anesthetic effect. But it also has, as it's described here, a delayed effect. That's the biting like a serpent. A serpent injects its venom into, uh, in, into its subject, and the venom begins to spread throughout the body and do its damaging effect. And so it is with liquor. It has a damaging effect. Just measure the liver enzymes of, of ALT and, and GPT, GPT and, and uh, SGOT, and you'll see those liver enzymes begin to rise as the liver begins to struggle to process the alcohol out of the body. It talks about in this verse, at the last. In other words, that it, it in the end, it makes a person like a fool. To become drunk makes a person person to look foolish. His speech becomes slurred. He begins to sway. He loses control. It says here in verse 33, thine eyes shall behold strange women. Liquor has a tendency of opening the door to all kinds of sexual immorality. For us to have the gates on this aspect of our lives is a good thing, the gates of inhibition. And liquor breaks down those gates of inhibition. We don't know what was going on inside Noah's tent by by the whatever sexual immorality was taking place, but what Whatever it was, it wasn't good, and we don't need to know, and we don't want to know, but the point is, is that liquor breaks down the doors, the good doors that are there for us to not become involved in thinking and beholding, so to speak, strange women, in other words, thinking, pornographic thoughts, and so forth. Then it says, and thine heart shall utter perverse things. In other words, the heart is described to us in Jeremiah as the part within us that is deceitful and desperately wicked. And so what happens is that liquor causes the heart all of a sudden to come up with these shocking thoughts. Where did that come from? I didn't know that was within me. It's perverse things, and it happens deep within in the heart. And so that's what's meant here when it says, describes how liquor causes the heart to utter perverse things. Then it says in verse 34, yea, thou shalt be as he that lieth down in the midst of the sea. Who would ever lie down in the midst of the sea? You'll drown. So in other words, liquor causes you to, to lose discretion, to lose caution. Caution gets thrown to the wind. And so a person who is drunk gets in a car and he's drunk and he drives over a cliff and kills himself. Why? Because he's drunk. He's like one who's lying down in the midst of the sea. Or he gets behind the wheel and he sees that van in front of him, but he plows right into that van and kills the people in the van. Why? Because liquor caused him to lie down in the midst of the sea. Then in verse 35, it says, that that the person who gets involved with the liquor says, they have stricken me, shalt thou say, and I was not sick. They have beaten me, and I felt it not. When shall I awake? 
I will seek it yet again. So it says they have stricken me and I wasn't sick. They have beaten me. A person who gets drunk afterward just feels beat up. He feels like he's he feels like 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 uh, thugs have worked him over and he's sore all over and especially his head. But he says, he says, but when it was happening, I felt it not. In other words, I didn't even know it was happening to me because that's what liquor does. Liquor is an anesthetic, and it, and, and in fact, it says that as we covered today that you give strong drink unto him that's ready to perish. In other words, it's the anesthetic that, and that was what they used to give in the old days. Whether they do a surgery here, have this big stiff drink of whiskey, and this will get you through it, so you don't feel it. I felt felt it not but afterward uh, you feel it plenty and then it says when i when shall i awake i will seek it yet again so when it says when shall i awake it's a picture of someone who's gotten so drunk that they've just passed out they just uh, you know and I remember when I went to Miami University as a freshman there and, and seeing all these kids, and at last, you know, someone would go buy them liquor, and, and they would just drink, drink, drink in the fraternities and sororities until they would just pass out. And then it says, when shall I awake? It says, I will seek it yet again. So what's that a picture of? That's a picture of addiction. That's a picture of a person saying, I, well, it was so bad, but I want to do it again. I was, that's addiction, and alcohol affects the body. We actually, uh, there are blood tests to, to show if a person is addicted. So all in all, this is not a good picture that liquor is painted for us in the Bible. Thank you for joining us today. Now, Israel Restoration Ministries has an opportunity if you're listening in the Southern California area. And this opportunity is to become a full-time missionary working for Israel Restoration Ministries. You'll be a courier of the gospel to the Jewish people. So if you're interested in going door-to-door, reaching lost Jewish people right where they're at, building relationships with them, and discipling God's lost chosen nation of people, please contact us today at Israel Restoration Ministries at one 800 247 3051. That's 1-800-247-3051. If you know someone that's qualified, interested in being a full-time called missionary of the Jewish people, let us know. 1-800-247-3051. Reach God's lost nation of Jewish people. Join us again tomorrow at this same time.